Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So what does it mean to be blessed? In her reflection on the use of hashtag blessed in New York Times, Jessica Bennett wrote this. She said, here are a few ways that God has hashtag blessed my social network over the past few months. God has helped a friend get accepted into graduate school. She was hashtag blessed. God has made it possible for one of my yoga instructors, Caribbean Spa Retreat. She was hashtag blessed. God has helped a new mom outfit her tiny infant in a designer frock. Blessed. God has graced a colleague with 57 Facebook wall postings about her birthday. She was also blessed. God has, in fact, recently hashtag blessed my network with a dazzling array of job promotions and speaking gigs and the most wonderful fiancés ever. But it's not just the little people God is blessing, Bennett writes. He's been known to hashtag bless Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, this was a couple years ago, with an abundance of exotic getaways and expensive bottles of champagne overlooking sunsets of biblical proportion. They were hashtag blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? If you could bring up the slide of the picture, there's two pictures. You'll recognize one of them, maybe if you can see it, it's a little washed out from the sunlight, but... The, the older woman, her name is Tumyum. I met her in a slum in Jakarta, Indonesia in 2008. She was dirt poor, lived mostly on rice, lived in fear of persecution because she was a Christian in a largely Muslim neighborhood. And of course, on the other side, we've got Mark Zuckerberg, whose net worth is around $80 billion. Which one is blessed? Consider the answer of Jesus in Luke 6, 20 through 26. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. Is Tumium blessed? Really? Or is is Zuck cursed because he's rich and well-fed? I mean, what do we make of this teaching? How could could Jesus possibly teach this? Am I supposed to become like Tumium? Am I supposed to sell everything and move to a slum and go to bed hungry in order to be blessed by God? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, the church, in her wisdom, has given us Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 in the lectionary this morning. We didn't read it because I'm going to read much of it, um, because it really gets to the heart of what's going on in Beatitudes, and I use that word very intentionally, the heart. Listen carefully to Jeremiah the prophet. Chapter 17, verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah here is summarizing the teaching of the Bible that a person's heart, your heart, is like the engine of a train. The heart powers and leads the way in life. Our heart is the center of who we are. It's the organizing principle of our life. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. But Jeremiah chapter 15, 9 also names a very terrific problem almost insurmountable. The heart is devious above all else, it says. The heart is perverse, it says. It's sick. 
So the essential sickness is that our, our hearts tend to make, quote, flesh its strength. Flesh simply means anything in the world, anything at all, even good things. John Calvin famously summarized, the human heart is an idle factory. It tends to make good things in the world, things like money and food and, and good feelings and approval. It tends to make these good things ultimate things, to make them God. And so our hearts so easily crown these things, the king of our life, and they become the engine of our train, the organizing principle of our whole life. But then hear Jeremiah's warning, those who, whose hearts trust in flesh, they're like a shrub in the desert. They shall not see any good come. They shall dwell in an uninhabited salt land. When we organize our life around something like wealth, something fleshly, we enter a spiritual desert, a wasteland. We dry up like a withering shrub. Conversely, Jeremiah says in verse 7, Blessed is the man whose trust, or woman, whose trust is in the Lord. They are like a tree planted by the water. So we have this contrasting image of a tree by a river and a shrub dying in the desert. And the question before us is simple. What or who has your heart? Okay, now we are prepared to read the Beatitudes of Jesus in Luke 6. The Beatitudes are a search of the heart. They're a biopsy. The goal of a biopsy, as you know, is to explore whether or not we are hiding in us some form of some cancer, some sickness that needs to be cut out. In particular, the Beatitudes of Luke 6 search our hearts for, for really most of the common idols that we, most of us are aware of to some degree, namely wealth and comfort and good feelings and approval. So beginning in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6, we read that Jesus lifts his eyes. The crowds are there, but he lifts his eyes from the crowds to his disciples. That's you. I want you to imagine him in your mind's eye lifting his eyes upon you. Can you, in your mind's eye, imagine just the, the deep brown sincerity of Jesus' gaze resting upon you? And as he prepares to speak, you've got to recognize the gravity of this moment. He's just gathered the 12 disciples for the first time, all 12. And you, being a good Israelite, you know what 12 means, don't you? 12 men, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And your mind begins to raise, what is, does this mean what I think it does? Is he... Is he forming Israel again? Is he reforming a people for himself? That's exactly what he's doing. And so having done this, what are the defining words that will ring for generations to come in the ears of his newly gathered disciples, his new people? Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And this is just a striking, counterintuitive reversal of the values, not just of our day, but also of his day. But it's in keeping with this, if you've been paying attention to Luke, this great theme of reversal. It began when, when God selects the lowly Mary, the lowly Mary's womb. And then the lowly Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And then this theme of reversal continues when Jesus comes into the synagogue in his hometown and he gives them the mission statement that will define his whole ministry. And it says the Lord has anointed me to bring, bring good news to the poor and to free the captives. This whole God's kingdom is coming and it's reversing the world's values. And so he begins his ministry not in the Roman halls of power, but in the Galilean countryside. And he goes and he seeks out the sick and the demon-possessed and the lepers and the paralyzed and the tax collectors and prostitutes. In other words, he seeks out the poor. 
Now, in order to understand what Jesus means by blessed are the poor, we actually have to define at least two terms. We have to define what it means, who are the poor, and then what does it mean to be blessed? So first, who are the poor? Um, In the Bible, and in Luke in particular, this word is not a word that speaks only of those of low economic resources. Because in fact, around 90%, according to most estimates, around 90% of the Roman Empire at the time of Christ was either living at or below subsistence levels. So most people were, by our standards, poor. Um, The best way of understanding what Luke actually means by the word poor is to look at the way he uses it. So I shared this several weeks back. I'll share it again. There's a graphic, a chart here that, that details how Luke uses the word poor. And you'll notice in each instance, poor is at the top of a list, except in seven where it's in the last position, which is the emphatic position. And what we take from this is poor is actually a category of people And we define that category by these other words, captive, blind, oppressed, hungry, mournful, harassed, leper, deaf, dead, maimed, lame, blind, and so on. So the poor are not only the economically poor. Poor is a category that is trying to encapture all those of low social status, or therefore those without power. Many for economic reasons, but also those ostracized because they're sick, or because they're lepers, or deaf, or deformed, or because in this day, because they're women or because they're children, or they're orphans, or they're immigrants, maybe they're criminals, or maybe we might add to this list victims of abuse, or ethnic minorities, or those who lack education, or the very elderly who are often forgotten, and we could go on and on. Likewise, the rich, for Luke, does not mean those just with great wealth, although it includes, often it includes them. It means those whom Mary actually sings about in her song of great reversal. She sings that God has humbled the arrogant and the proud and the powerful. Those are the rich. Think of the rich man in Luke 16 who sits outside the door, uh, the rich, Lazarus, who sits outside the door of the rich man, and there's this leprous Lazarus on the doorstep sleeping day and night, and this very wealthy man who won't even give him a crumb from his table. That's what we're to think of when we think of the rich. Joel Green summarizes, Joel Green being a, a famous Luke scholar, wealth and poverty, rich and poor, these terms involve financial considerations, but are chiefly worked out in terms of social stratification, grounded in experiences of belonging and exclusion. Belonging and exclusion. So that's what poor means. The second term, blessed. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor? The word blessed here is makarios, and I always don't know whether I should say the Greek word. I don't say that to be like, oh, I study Greek. My Greek is bad. Okay, but I just, I think it's helpful to know the word behind the word. So makarios, defined by one scholar as a pronouncement based on an observation that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing. Okay, so what does that mean? Don't think of it like this. Don't think of it like the Beatitudes are not saying, if you become poor, if you give all your money away, then at that moment, God does the distinct action of blessing you. No. Rather, something like this. How flourishing you will be, how happy you will be, how lucky you will be if you are not addicted to material things. There's a certain way of life that tends towards human flourishing, and that way of life involves not being tied up, your heart being tied up in being wealthy. Why? Because wealth is a powerful, perhaps the most powerful idol, that when it becomes the organizing principle of the heart, when it drives the train of your life, it will make you spiritually thirsty. You will be like a shrub in an uninhabited salt land. 
Therefore, Jesus insists, blessed are the poor. Mother Teresa, who encountered more poverty than you and I combined probably ever will, frequently talked about what she called the poverty-stricken West. She told one reporter, the spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of the people I serve. People in the West know that they need something more than money, but they don't know what it is. What they are missing really is a living relationship with God. I mean, from my mouth, you know, a, a, a white middle-class man pastor, like it's empty to, it's easy for me to, yeah, you need, you need God more than money. But someone who lived amongst the poorest of the poor for decades, sincerely saying the, the West is impoverished because they don't know the love of God. Do we believe her or not? So I want to dwell here for a minute because the point is just so incredibly counterintuitive and it's difficult for us to swallow. I think we need to provide some substantiation to the claim, blessed are the poor. Well, Jesus is among the first to teach what we now know, data and experience verify. First, a bit of data. In his article in The Atlantic, Arthur Brooks condenses decades of research into one paragraph. Here's what he says. One of the greatest paradoxes in American life is that while on the average existence has gotten more and more comfortable, happiness has fallen. Median household income adjusted for inflation has risen over time. Domestic government services have risen over time. Average living space per person has nearly doubled between 1973 and 2016. Internet users increased over time dramatically. Social media use skyrocketing over time. But amid these advances in quality of life across income scale, average happiness continues to decline. The general social survey shows a long-term gradual decline in happiness and rise in unhappiness from 1988 to the present. This is just objective and well-documented truth. Stuff does not make you ultimately happy. It simply does not. I was uh, excited about this drone I was going to get for Christmas. And I spent really weeks, it was delayed from shipping, so I didn't get it until like the end of January, and I spent weeks like thinking about it, like I can't wait to get it and fly, I was so excited, it's going to make me so happy. And then I flew it for two days, and I flew it too high, and the wind took it, and it's now in my trash. (laughs) And as one of my old pastors used to say, in time, life will trash all of your trophies. All of your treasures will end up in the trash. You can't take it with you. Most of them sooner or later. Do you know that Americans spend, this is a mind-blowing statistic to me, Americans spend in a year, Americans spend on trash bags in a year. More than 90 of the world's 210 countries spend for everything. We have more money. We are buying and consuming more than ever. Prime packages are arriving constantly on our doorsteps. And we are less and less makarios, less flourishing as a society. So much for data. Here are a few anecdotes. I was 16 when the movie Fight Club was making waves. It was about a man who had, who, who had the American dream. He had it all. Tyler Durden, right? But he remained hungry for more. He was unsatisfied. And in a Rolling Stone interview, Brad Pitt, who played the character, he revealed how much he resonated with this character. He told Rolling Stone, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success, but if you ask me, we should toss it all. Because why are we so desperate and lonely? 
We've got to find something else. We're headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. Brad Pitt is preaching the sermon. And the interviewer says to Brad Pitt, so if we're heading towards this kind of existential dead end society, what, are we gonna, what do you think should happen, Brad Pitt? And Brad Pitt says, hey man, I don't have the answers. You should go to Jordan's church and hear from him. <laughs> he says, hey, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis for me right now is on success and personal gain. And he smiles. He says, I'm sitting in it. I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you that is not it. He's telling the interviewer this. I'm the guy who's got everything, but I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're left with just yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. I mean, come on, if you won't trust Jesus or Mother Teresa, you'll trust Brad Pitt, right? (laughs) But for me, it's actually not stuff as much. I mean, I like technology and Apple products and stuff, but for me, it's more so experiences. Like, I, I just think, I just need to be able to travel in the Swiss Alps for a month or two every couple of years, then I'll be happy. You know, I just need to be able to go where I want. I need to go have a long beach vacation, then I'll flourish. Nothing wrong with vacations. I'm not, I'll get there. What's the point? Is money evil? Are are great experiences that money brings us evil? No. The point is that data and experience teach us what Jesus has already tried to teach us. Wealth and power is not the secret to flourishing. Ultimately, it's just not. If your heart cherishes money above all else, you are spiritually drying up. A heart given over to wealth, a heart given over where wealth drives the train, tends towards the growth of several spiritual cancers, pride, self-reliance, a bloated sense of importance, a bloated sense of power, an addiction to things that will end up in the trash. Like, I can just never get enough. I can, you know, it's like when I, when I have this much money, I think to be rich means this. When I have this much money, to be rich means this. And it's just like I can never get enough. And you become a slave to things. In contrast to the pride of riches, a woman named Monica Helwig lists the following spiritual advantages to being economically poor. She says, The poor know that they are, urgent, they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know their dependence on God, and they know that they're interdependent on one another. The poor rest their security not on things, but in people. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance. The poor tend to rely not on impersonal competition, but on neighborly cooperation. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. The poor are patient because they've always had to wait for everything. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and want. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or a scolding. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment because they have so little to lose. Why does being detached from the addiction to material wealth and power tend towards flourishing? Because the the poor are, in a word, humble. Because they've been humbled their entire life. And we, the rich, and I definitely count myself in that category, must allow Jesus to search us with the scalpel of these words. There is no place to hide from him in this. It's just unnerving. Because the way we spend our resources is an irrefutably accurate assessment of what our heart treasures. And that's why he talks so much about money. It's tough. The biopsy here is simple. Do you keep all of your resources for yourself? 
that is evidence that wealth is driving the train of your life and you are trusting in your resources more than, more than you should. Or, conversely, are you growing? Not necess- you're not necessarily giving everything away today and you're moving. No, just are you growing over time in generosity to the poor? Then you are a testimony of God's grace and power. Because after noting how difficult it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom, this is the camel in the eye of the needle, the disciples protest to Jesus, how can anyone be saved then? I mean, that's the question we ask, right? Like, well, we're all rich. How can we be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, as we cooperate with God and we're humbled by these words and we allow him to address this idolatry in our heart, he can actually grow us who are rich in generosity. Make, make no mistake, God loves you who are rich. Remember that he called the very wealthy Levi, the tax collector, to be his disciple. He calls the wealthy to be his disciples, right? Remember that Jesus' own life and ministry survived on the benefaction of others who had resources. That's how he lived. So Jesus is not an aesthetic who rejects wealth on principle. Not at all. So being confident of his love for you and knowing you can trust this surgeon to, to biopsy your heart, will you allow this teaching to do that? To search for the idolatry of wealth within, which is not going to lead you to flourishing. So remember, this morning, Jesus meant it when he said that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and actually it is better to give than to receive. This is not like a religious slogan. This is not like Hallmark card. This is like a true value of the kingdom of God. You will flourish to the extent that you live out this principle. It is better to give than to receive. Do we trust him or not? Can you imagine a community, a world in which that's the value? Can you imagine if every heart in the world was compelled, not not obligated by a government, not like guilted into it by a pastor, but just sincerely the love of Christ welling up within them to have this value, I am going to consider giving better than receiving. Can you imagine a world shaped by this? Where the most powerful and wealthy 10% of people made it their mission and their joy to serve the weakest of the weak? Wow, what a world to live in. And that is the world we'll live in. And we, the church are a signpost to that world as we embody that value in ourselves. Let there be no poor amongst us. Let any of you, any of us who have needs, find their church as the body of Christ tending to their needs. That's the vision of the church. We're to be a people who live this upside-down value. Blessed are the poor. All that I've just said can now be applied to the other Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are hungry now. I mean, does God like it when people are starving? No, 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 no. How flourishing you will be if you are not addicted to comfort and pleasure. How flourishing you will be if you haven't made your God your belly. And you can just never eat enough to be satisfied or never have enough pleasure to be satisfied, never have enough comfort to be satisfied, and you just need more, 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 more. That's a terrible God. And if you follow that God, you will be like a parched shrub. Blessed are you who weep now. Does God like it when people hurt and are sad? No. Rather, how flourishing you will be if you are not addicted to good feelings. When you idolize good feelings, you will numb your way through life, riding the forced highs of drugs or sexual pleasure or entertainment or distraction, and you will just never get enough. It's a terrible God. 
Blessed are you when people hate you on account of me. Really? Is God like a a masochist delighting in our rejection? No, not at all. How flourishing you will be when you are not addicted to the approval of others. If your heart desires nothing more than just approval from people, you will not live authentically. You will not live honestly. You'll just bend this way and that, and you'll be chained up by the need to please those around you. You'll have no convictions. You aren't living really for anything at that point. That's not a good God. So the Beatitudes are a biopsy of the heart. In whom or what do you ultimately trust? That's the question they force us to ask. Blessed are you, says Jeremiah, if you trust the Lord more than money, more than comfort, more than good feelings, more than approval. When you do this, you become like a tree beside the water bearing fruit to those around you. Final Mother Teresa story to land the plane. She tells this story, I think this was in her speech uh, when she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, but she tells this story. She says, I had the most extraordinary experience with a Hindu family who had eight children. Eight children. A gentleman came to our house and said, Mother Teresa, there's a family with eight children. They They have not eaten for so long. Will you please do something? And so Mother Teresa says, I took them some rice and I went there immediately. And I saw the children. Their eyes were shining with hunger. I don't know if you've ever seen hunger, but I have seen it often. And then the mother of those hungry children took the rice that I had given her, and she divided it in half. And she went out to her neighbor's home. And she gave me, I asked her, where did you go? Why did you do that? What did you do? And she gave me a very simple answer. She said to me, they were hungry also. And what struck me most was that she knew her neighbor's need. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the poor around you? I didn't bring more rice to that evening because I wanted them to enjoy. I mean, she had more rice. She could have brought it. She said, I didn't bring more because I wanted them to enjoy the joy of sharing. And then there were the children who began radiating joy. They were sharing the joy with their mother because she, they had seen their mother love. They saw her mother delight in sharing. They saw their mother, in her words, love until it hurt. And the truth is it it tends to come more naturally for the poor. They know what it's like to hurt. They know what it's like to suffer. And we who are rich so easily just, we love, but we don't want to love until it hurts. We want to stay comfortable. We want to trust in our riches. We don't want to sacrifice that much. And so the poor can be for us an example of how to live a truly blessed life, how actually giving is better than receiving. You know, we trust Jesus who if anyone ever has, has loved you and I until it hurt. Not because we were so radically generous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you just as you are. And so we trust him to search our hearts and cut from us what is not leading to a flourishing life. We follow him who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. As Paul summarizes in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who know Christ, you know his grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The end game is not to live an impoverished, hungry, persecuted life. Ultimately, he wants to bring us into a life of flourishing and riches and wealth, but when those things become ultimate, we become slaves to them. What did C.S. Lewis say? He said, aim for earth and that's all you get. Aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. 
This is the difference between Buddhist and Christian sense of detachment. I'm actually inviting you guys to detach yourself from allegiance to wealth and comfort and pleasure and approval. And you know the Buddhist Eightfold Path is one of detachment. But the Buddha says we have to blow out the candle of desire completely, eliminate all desire. That's not what you're being invited to. You're being invited to desire the Lord Christ above all else so that he may give you his good gifts of food and pleasure and good things, but not ultimate things. So what does it mean to be blessed? It means to, in the words of Mother Teresa, again, it means to belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. Remember the shrub? Remember the tree? I have set before you today spiritual famine or spiritual flourishing. Blessed are the poor. Father, I pray, I pray that you would graciously convict us in these conversations. I know it's so easy to just feel guilty. Don't leave us in that place. I pray that you would help us to know what is one small practical step we can make towards reflecting your generosity to us who were poor. We pray that as you convict us, you would assure us of your love, that you are actually inviting us into more and more of a way of life that is flourishing for ourselves and for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.